Hello, I'm Angelina Pratt, your host of Empathetic Witness. My guest today is Steve Nita from the Northwest Territories, and we are going to have a conversation today about climate change and how it's impacting the North. Without further ado, here is Steve. All right, Steve, before we start, what I like to do is get my guests to introduce themselves because people wear so many different hats that I don't know what they want to emphasize and what they want. Uh, We're going to be speaking about the environment, climate change. Uh, So whatever hat that fits. (laughs) So I'll leave that to you to introduce yourself. Okay. Well... Stephen Nita Sulje. Is it so nothing in a uh, my name is Steven Nita. I'm a Denison Dene from the Tlusaga uh, Dene First Nations. I was raised by my great grandparents and grandparents on the land uh, in and around Tlusaga. Uh, Grew up with their teachings. Today, uh, I'm a uh, Father of three, living Yellowknife, and I work in the in supporting Indigenous uh, peoples, Indigenous nations, their communities, uh, by helping them build relationships with who they need to build relationships with, and those that have an interest in their territories. I uh, fight for Indigenous rights and responsibilities at home and across the country and in the last decade or so I've been focusing my energies around indigenous leadership and conservation uh, to address the twin crisis of climate change and um, biodiversity loss it's in fact it's impacting everybody on earth and and the quality of life for generations to come wow that's you've got some really important hats that you're wearing, important work. And, you know, and I recognize that I'm, I mean, I was raised, you know, by my, my parents um, and my, my grandparents, they lived in Saskatchewan. We moved to Alberta, but it was a traditional family. My father hunt and trapped and my older brothers did the same. So, you know, our connection to the land is really sacred. Like we, we understand everything we need is on the land. And it's changed now that most of us are living in urban areas. But I think the way we were raised, I mean, I remember when I was young, there there used to be, my, my dad used to trap muskrats. So it'd be all these muskrat pelts drying, you know, on the ceiling, everywhere you look, there'd be muskrat 
else. And I remember as a child, I had um, I had a liking for muskrat tail, and we would just throw it on the stove and kind of sear it. And it, and they used to always tease me about having kind of black on my face, you know, from muskrat tail. <laughs> but you know, so the connection to the land is real, and it's it's part of the life we were raised in. So what I would like you to, I've watched a number of interviews with you um, on YouTube and the different interviews you've, you've given, but I haven't really heard you talk about a typical childhood memory you had when you were young. Maybe you can tell us a story about growing up as a young lad on the land, maybe a hunting story, um, something like that. Well, there's many memories in different places. Uh, you know, the, the awe and possibilities of walking over the next hill in the tundra, for an example. Mm. Uh, where, you know, uh, you never know what you're going to see on the other side of that hill. You might see a herd of caribou, pack of wolves, uh, or uh, a bear. You know, there's, uh, the possibilities were always, uh, you know, a wondrous experience. And the lure of going to the next hill was, uh, uh, is also associated with that memory, obviously. And, you know, sometimes uh, by... By following that lure, going to the next cell, you find yourself miles from camp, and and then people have gotten lost uh, by that that, that lure. Uh, and there's the uh, you know the first first dog team ride in the in the crisp air of uh, fall time, and mm. when the fish sit the fishness usually is the first order of business with the dog team, and then. Uh, but you know those are childhood experiences that, that but the the key thing I remember mostly is the uh, constant messaging from grandparents about uh, uh, responsibility and uh, the history of the people and and the role of the of people within that relationship with with uh, with uh, territory and it's uh, I think the the key messaging that is unique to indigenous people globally is the fact that you know the sense of ownership to of land was never part of of that discussion. Mm-hmm. It was that uh, relationship with land and responsibility to it. And I think that's what uh, unites indigenous people uh, from all over from all four corners of the world. You know. And I think that's that messaging is something that I that I bring to uh, a dialogue today. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you that that um, when we look at and a lot of people are looking towards indigenous people when we talk about climate change. You know, what are indigenous people thinking about? What are they noticing, especially? north of 60, because it must be, I think when you're looking at climate change, the evidence is quicker in the north. I've heard, um, you know, from several people from up north that say 
you know, even the color of the snow looks different because it's the ice is, is thinning. I mean, and it's quicker, you know, you're seeing evidence of, of that every day where you live. And, and it must be of some concern, you know, and, and how do you take not advantage, but how do you use what's happening up north to educate people? What, what type of things, like, are there opportunities that, you know, say tourism, for example, are there opportunities in the north now that are important for people to see? Well, certainly the, uh, uh, there's opportunities to learn from this changing times and changing climates. Uh, the North has certainly experienced a, a higher degree of it, uh, scientifically proven, and it's been, it's been in, under observation of, of our people for, for over a decade now. Uh, the largest protected areas in Canada and the world in the last uh, decade has been created uh, here in the Northwest Territories, uh, led by Dene people, including my people, the creation of Thay Dene Dene, a land of our ancestors. Uh, you know, we we built relationship with uh, the federal government in the form of with Parks Canada and, and the government of Northwest Territories using uh, two of their legislation to, as part of a mosaic of protected areas, we call Saidanenena. It's an indigenous protected and conserved area. It's twenty-six thousand three hundred and sixty some square kilometers, uh, and my community is uh, really taking a leadership role in developing uh, tourism and other business opportunities there. And and uh, as the uh, management of the Saidanenena matures, others. Uh, We'll see benefits from it as well. Similarly, in the dead show, they have a Deje, one of the, one of the huge areas that's biodiverse uh, and rich in uh, natural capital, if you will, nature nature's uh, services. Huge wetlands and that sucks in millions and millions of tons of carbon. And then uh, putting the Mackenzie River in a the Satu Dene, led by the uh, the Fort Good Hope uh, people of Fort Good Hope, have created Tuyeta, another indigenous protected and conserved area. You know, and there they could uh, realize finance and opportunities, uh, even and and a natural environment where indigenous value systems can be uh, utilized in the management and operations of these places bringing to the forefront uh, uh, knowledge, indigenous science, uh, indigenous perspectives, questions uh, that are indigenous to an area and and informed by indigenous values to inform the type of scientific questions that can be asked. So I I think uh, in these changing times, there's opportunities to do some research and and what type of research questions and processes uh, that can be used can be uh, greatly indigenized and using indigenous worldviews, and that could be uh, then becomes part of the uh, 
key learning tools that's going to impact and influence these dominant societies of the world. I think uh, the opportunity for that climate change presents as a uh, as an opportunity to uh, learn different perspectives and value systems. And globally, indigenous people make up five percent of the world's population, but have eighty uh, percent of the world's remaining biodiversity. Now, that's a scientific fact. The question is, why is that? And what can the dominant world learn from that so that, you know, as the population of the, the Earth uh, hits 8 billion and growing, and those value systems are going to be needed to maintain relationship with nature if it's going to be able to support the populations that's, uh, that's, uh, that's here today and increasing into the future. Um, I was thinking, what is there danger, or have you noticed the uh, the medicines that we use from the land is is it becoming difficult, more difficult to find these different medicines that we use? Well, yeah. the uh, the flora, the plants are, uh, and trees are are migrating like uh, like all the other biodiversity, mm-hmm. like the animals, they're migrating north. Uh, so the, all our medicines and uh, that we use, many of them are in migration. So where we used to find them may not they may not be there anymore. Wow. That's uh you know that's part of the impacts of climate change and and uh, uh, we have to be able to adapt uh to these new conditions these new relationships we're going to have to have with new animals if we're not migrating with with our uh, with uh, with what we're familiar with. Right. So you know, when when we look at, you know, exchange and um, education, you know, with non-natives, what area is is the most important when you're when you're talking to other people, maybe industry, and you're creating protection areas? How do you convey that to, you know, government officials and people in industry that have a specific purpose that they want to extract, you know, certain um, minerals from the earth, but you want to slow that process down, but they have a goal. I mean, it's a commercial goal, right? So it's their, their idea is get as much for as quickly as possible. How do you slow that down? What kind of conversations do you have to slow that process down to get them to understand that the slow way of doing this is going to benefit everybody, not just the indigenous people on that land. But it must be a difficult conversation to have. It is a difficult conversation to have. You know, the the role of an economist is uh, is to uh, has been uh, building a roadmap of. Of, of perpetual growth and that in the uh, 
books of companies and governments, you know, that, uh, what's been uh, created and valued is what gets on the on those uh, spreadsheets. Uh, even as recently as Titan and Nenna, when we negotiated that it was agreement started in 2010, uh, the making the argument for cultural, spiritual, and those other reasons were you know, good arguments, but they weren't a winning argument. An economic argument uh, is what uh, won the day for Titan and Nenna. However, having said that, you know, in the post COP 15, uh, the conference of the parties uh, and the framework that the United Nations uh, signed uh, that recognizes indigenous leadership and in, in, in relationship with nature, there is uh, today uh, as the beginnings of uh, of a financial value placed on nature. It's no longer uh, uh, the old colonial ways of thinking where, you know, land is not worth anything until you destroy it and create a, a product out of it, similarly to trees. Now we know uh, without a doubt that the nature is a, has been a big part of the economies. And with, if the nature breaks down, as, uh, as we're seeing through biodiversity loss, uh, and not and not provide a, a, the services that nature has been providing, uh, the economy is going to be impacted greatly. <laughs> in you know, in a way, uh, there's more value placed on the economy than people. Uh, but I guess it's uh, intrinsic. Uh, from from the Western world uh, world point of view, but today, you know, it's not just about uh, what uh, other products is in that land. Uh, you know, the question should be: well, Is that product uh, have more value than the land itself and the services providing? Yeah. So, it's a, it's a, we're, we're living in a different environment now. And in Canada, for, for instance, as was a leader in the uh, discussions uh, leading up to the framework agreement being agreed to by 190 or so nations at the, at the Mon Montreal Conference of the Parties in December. Mm -hmm. And Canada has agreed to, to uh, conserve. 30% of, of, of uh, terrestrial land in Canada and 30% of the oceans. Uh, to me, here's a great opportunity to add a, uh, an op, uh, a, a reconciliation piece to the reconciliation agenda. Uh, you know, some semblance of land back for Indigenous people, specifically in south of the 60th parallel where they don't have a processes, uh, uh, to resolve land issues, mm -hmm. where Indigenous people are declared Indigenous protected and conserved areas, by recognizing those uh, areas and and giving and supporting Indigenous nations to uh, use their value systems, worldviews, and science to manage those areas, to restore biodiversity or to maintain what's there, and improve upon where it can be. 
and, and manage in those areas with those value systems and bring in West, uh, the best of uh, Western science and combine the two and uh, learn from each other and and uh, uh, take the thirty percent and see what we can do, how we could give nature the one third solution to the to the crisis of climate change and biodiversity loss. Yeah, I I get that. I mean, it it seems to me. I mean, well, let let us just kind of circle back to the the impact of climate change, like from today compared to say ten years ago. What has changed, and what impact are you seeing today in everyday life, like just in the ordinary life of a Dene in the north? Well, it's pretty hard to uh, to uh, pinpoint exactly what has changed. Uh, you know, there's the one thing the Dene life has been going through is constant change for the last hundred years. Uh, economic and other stressors, political policies, and and implementation of those policies. Uh, you know, we've seen residential school. We're seeing the survivors today. We're seeing the uh, impacts of of the trapping industry, the first industry that was introduced to Canada, uh, being reduced by international political and activist movements around around uh, uh, cruelty to animals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, we've been in a constant flux of change. Uh, so, but the biggest thing that's changed is uh, what we normally, what we are used to be comfortably knowing in terms of our land uh, and, and, and the ability to use that knowledge to safely travel great distances uh, is something that we're not as comfortable with anymore. Uh, areas where it used to be okay to cross in the winter on ice uh, may not be the same anymore because of the slight changes in temperature. Ice is softer. There's more more gray ice, uh, and you know uh, animals that we're we're not used to dealing with, like cougars, are are coming into the southern part of the territory. So yeah, these these things are uh, are impacting the way. We, we relate or with our territory, and you know that's sort of the challenge we're faced. How do we adapt? Yeah, that's a good question. How are you adapting? Oh, it's you know by continuously uh, maintaining the relationship with territory. Not everybody's doing, it, but enough for doing it in an organized way that there's a there's still a transfer of knowledge between yeah. one generation to the next. There's still the maintenance of the knowledge and gaining new knowledge, and that's the only way you can really adapt, really. Mm. And are there new opportunities presented because of the these changes, or is it all detrimental and um, negative? Are there any opportunities coming out of this? Well, I imagine there's always opportunity and chaos, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we're going to be experiencing more and more chaotic uh, uh, 
weather patterns and uh and you know so it's there's going to be opportunities there i imagine yeah uh, but for me the uh, the opportunity for indigenous people and in, and for canada is to you know every part of the country every indigenous community should have their own indigenous protected and conserved area mm. where they can uh, uh maintain reconnect or strengthen their their relationship with uh, nature and and give their their knowledge systems a chance to uh, rebirth uh, ways of knowing and doing that may be dormant. Uh, I think that that's the uh, the great uh, opportunity for social justice, for historical wrongs being corrected, for uh, reconciliation in Canada, mm. where uh, uh, at one point in time uh, there was a respectful relationship between uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. And getting back to that time is uh is what the uh you know building back better could be. So it so the opportunities are stemming from reconciliation, right? So it's is through the reconciliation that you build these partnerships that are being created in, in your area? Well, you know, I think the opportunities for partnerships is is available right across the country. Yeah, every every indigenous community can have their own protected and conserved area. If there's a if they have the spot, and you know, getting to Canada to get to thirty percent protected area. Yeah, like the uh, hundred and ninety other countries that agreed to do the same thing. Yeah, and do it in a way that's uh, that that uh, centers indigenous rights and responsibilities. Yep. And and human rights uh, is what they're committed to. So, thirty percent of the country uh, of land, for example, is a it's a huge quantum of land. Right. We're at thirteen point eight percent or something like of that nature. The remaining sixteen point two percent to get to thirty percent by twenty thirty is a quantum of land roughly the size of Manitoba, mm-hmm. around two hundred fifty five. Uh, thousand square miles, not kilometers, square miles. You know, there's a op- real good opportunity for for reconciliation in Canada, where indigenous uh, worldviews and value systems, which is proven to be the healthiest uh, to in the maintenance of a healthy relationship between nature and man mm-hmm. today, uh, is is in front of us. You know, you could really make a direct line uh, between colonialism and climate change globally. Yeah. Colonialism was uh, the start of uh, globalization, Uh, uh, the introduction of uh, commerce and and value chains uh, and products. And, you know, the as the people were colonized or, and how they were treated, the land was treated the same way globally. Yeah. So, you know, I think uh, Mother Nature in its infinite and wisdom and kind-hearted way has uh, given us an opportunity to to uh, fix what fix uh, 
what went wrong and what is wrong and, and address where we went wrong. Yeah, there's a lot of evidence of that for sure. I mean, what you're saying is absolutely true. And it's something that I've heard, you know, even, even as a child, as I was growing up, you know, what colonization was doing to, to, well, to Mother Nature and to people, you know. And I think it's interesting you bring up the point of, you know, our people are becoming devalued. And so you're looking at the resources that's coming off the land as more important than people. And I think that's the message we get when industry exploits the lands that First Nations are living on, that they're depending on for their livelihood. And certainly, you know, since the, well, in my area, Fort Chippewan, that's where I'm, I'm from, in the early 70s, you know, there was the Bennett Dam in North in uh, BC that impacted the muskrat. One year, you know, when we'd walk along the um, the shore of where where I'm from, the water was really deep and it came up really high. You know, on the path we were walking, we had to walk, you know, on a hill, and there was a big chain link fence that we didn't fall into the water but and then the next year it seemed like almost overnight when the ban Bennett Dam was created the lands receded and when the lands receded the muskrat were gone I mean it took you know a few more years for the muskrat to disappear completely but that impacted the livelihood of a lot of people around the Fort Chip area and um, so what do we, you know, what do we do about that? I mean, we didn't, I think we, my First Nation, I don't think we did anything particular <laughs> about that against the Bennett Dam. I think there was a, a small um, compensation we were given. And when you look at the impact, it was really a small compensation for the the livelihood being completely destroyed. Um, so you know what I'm what I'm wanting the conversation that we're having right now to to gear towards is how you know like in your community how many of the youth are looking at. Uh, questions in science, environment, and that type of thing. Well, the youth in the community are very connected to their territory. Uh, they have a strong sense of relationship and responsibility that continues on from the, the days of my youth. Today, we have a uh, a legal contractual agreement with Canada and the government of Northwest Territories uh, to manage the heart of our homeland together. And through that relationship, uh, we've got a, a very strong uh, guardians program called Nihat Nijene. And the youth uh, you know, are involved through uh, 
summer summer jobs program. So all the guardians are are would qualify as youth. And we use the age age uh, age uh, in describing who a youth is and what a youth is. And yeah, so you know, it's they're uh, being introduced to. Uh, Research opportunities, field work, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, familiarity uh, uh, gives uh, rise to curiosity, and curiosity may give rise to a uh, uh, focus for education. Um, but I think the key would be to uh, transmit as much indigenous knowledge systems, indigenous sciences uh, to them as well, so that they have an ability to walk in two worlds and combine the two two knowledge systems where where possible. Yeah, I like that. I like the the um the concept of of um blending the indigenous knowledge and the science and being able to identify and walk walk on the land, you know, and see how both sides can help with uh, opportunities, you know, so I, I guess it's, it's a natural, there, it must be a natural progression of the transfer of knowledge from, from the elders to the youth, just day to day, right? I mean, you learn through just living on the land, like you said earlier, you know, what, to watch out for and, you know, what you're seeking in terms of what's over the next hill and also to pay attention to the environment. So, you know, there are some areas and roads you're not able to be as secure on anymore. And so you need to look for the signs, you know, what are the signs you're looking for to ensure the safety of people in the community? So, people can travel and still hunt and trap, but in a safe way. So the question then for me to you is, you know, these teachings from the, the elders to the youth, is it being written down? Is it, um, how are you capturing it? Well, it's uh, the, the teachings is, is mostly uh, transfer, transferred through to oral knowledge. Uh, the way it's been done for for since time immemorial, but uh, those teachings are also captured in in written and oral or video documentation as well. So those are available, and you know, maybe great material for for uh, curriculum development uh, into the future. But the elders are also learning from the youth as well today. Yeah, uh, there's a great knowledge transfer going on. Uh, you from with uh, from technology that exists that the the uh, youth. And young people use to to do their work. Uh, 
So, you know, for an example, the the Susagad Nihad Nidene are just finishing a program of uh, testing ice in different locations and, uh, that, uh, you know, where you, where thin ice are, is, usually happens uh, in certain times of year and that where areas that uh, you have that knowledge. So they are testing the ice today and, and documenting and using the technology that exists today. GPS tracking, et cetera, et cetera. So, and that information is transferred to the elders now. So, they're learning uh, in that process as well. Yeah. That and sounds think, uh, encouraging. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think, uh, given the resources, uh, our communities will, will, will adapt and they will utilize the value systems that's in, that's inherent in the uh, oral, oral oral knowledge, and it's still the preferred way to transfer knowledge for many people, especially those that are actively using the land. Uh, I think the real opportunity is what can, how can art, how can that value system, knowledge systems, can be transmitted to mainstream society. You know, we just can't get to the targets that we create for ourselves to to address climate change. Uh, what's needed to you know, we don't have uh, we don't have an environmental issue when it comes to climate change. We don't have a a. a, a animal or species issues when it comes to biodiversity loss. It's a social issue. The value systems that's driving the world today is consuming everything because of the value system that's generated in the last 150 years or so. Uh, and creating the uh, the supply chain and the that that supports the economies of the world. And that's the uh, that's the real challenge. And I think the five percent of the world population that holds eighty percent of the world's biodiversity has a lot to give uh, and has a lot to share. If there's a willing uh, recipient of that knowledge and value system. And that's where the real transformational change can can occur uh, to give us a to give our future generations a fighting chance to continue life on this island we call Mother Earth. Yeah, that I mean, I as I'm listening to you, I I feel some encouragement. You know, when I when I hear about the transfer of knowledge from the elders to the youth and from the youth to the elders that gives me encouragement because it's a cooperative learning system you know and that's you're you're right you know it's been you know thousands of years oral history has been passed down from generation to generation and it works the children do remember and um, so that gives me 
you know, a sense of hope. Because, you know, when we have a conversation on climate and the disasters that are created, I mean, when we look south where there's more tornadoes, there's more hurricanes, there's more extreme weather conditions. We, I don't know about other people, but I, you know, feel a sense of doom. You know, I, I kind of sense there's this doom. But in listening to you and hearing the way you speak, I also get a sense of hope and a sense of uh, some encouragement that in spite of what we're doing as humans to the environment, there still is that tie to ancient wisdom that might, if we implement them, and you talk about the protected lands and, and what you know was committed at COP15, and if all countries do what they say they're going to do, there is that sense of hope. But I'm wondering, how do you feel, what do you feel or what do you envision you would see in 20 years in the North? What will it look like in 20 years? Well, in 20 years, it'll be... Uh... I'll be, you know, people will still be here. Danny will still be here. Uh, the population maybe may grow by fifty percent. Who knows? Uh, you know, the that uh, uh, we have a thriving uh, economy around. Um, managing nature and enhancing nature solutions that uh, the global marketplace is investing in. The best part, every nature will be taken over by Yellowknife City. Every city will be taken over nature. And uh, who is that young person? That's my uh, my son. Oh, let him talk. What did he say? He says, uh, Yalda will consume all of nature by then. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That's great. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> How old is he? 11. 11. Oh, yeah. In 20 years, he'll be 21. Yeah. A young man. It will be his world then. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, in 20 years, I'm hoping that, uh, would have made a transition in the, and or made a major move and transition in our economy towards a, uh, an economy that supports nature and nature is valued. Mm. And that indigenous yeah. people are celebrated for the value systems that they're gifted to the world. And what would it take to, for that to happen? What, needs to happen for that to happen well you know <laughs> i think there's a the knowledge that five percent of the world's population has 80 percent of biodiversity that needs to get mainstream and the question asks why is that 
because uh, you know that's essential is that the the future population of the world has to be able to live within within the the means that that mother earth provides and you know and I'm not, in in my language we call the, the creator nutsine new is island and tine is the create the, the the creator or the, the creator of the island and you know, that's a deep deep uh, uh, knowledge that they've always known there was a, a creator we didn't necessarily call it Jesus Christ or or God mm. uh, we called it Nutsine but also recognizes that uh, Mother Earth is an island in a sea of space and you know I think just that knowledge alone we treated the, our relationship with with our part of the island uh, with uh, respect and diligence, with reciprocity, and uh, that needs to happen, and that's been happening in, in indigenous territories. Hence, the uh, remaining eighty percent of biodiversity is on indigenous peoples' lands, or lands that are influenced by indigenous peoples wow. today. Yeah, and, you know, we need to. We instead of five percent, uh, we need to. 100% of the world's population maintain 100% of the biodiversity. So that's a, that's the transformational opportunity and, and the cost of not doing it, it doesn't look good for man on earth. <laughs> You'll say no. Yeah, that's the, that's the, the truth, right? I mean, that's, that's the truth. Like, if you don't do anything, it's a pretty bleak outcome. <laughs> like, there's no way around it that you have to do it. You have to do something. And are they teaching in the schools this subject area, like conservation, protection of the environment? Is that being taught in the school? You know, I, I don't know. Uh, I wasn't taught when I went to school, and yeah, me and neither. Uh, you know, it's uh, I doubt it very much. You know, there's a political will. There's a political recognition. The will's there of eighty percent. Yeah, you know, but by the federal government, uh, I'm not sure the next party that gets into power is going to have the same uh, political will. Mm. Uh, so you know, ignorance seems to be strong in some circles. Yep. Uh, bureaucracy still hasn't been, uh, fully changed. They're still reverting back to their comfort base more often than not. Mm. So you know, the transformational change has got to come from from uh, from the people. Uh, the need for it and the asking for it has got to come from the grassroots. It's got to come from the Gen Xs. Yeah. And that's their. And you know that's where the, that transition is really going to happen. There is a some truth in the, the old term: you can't change an old dog's ways of habits. Unfortunately, <laughs> and especially when it when you're speaking towards the bureaucracy, you know, because you know when you look at bureaucracy, 
even if a young person gets into the government of some sort, they get gobbled up by the bureaucracy and they're in short time, they're promoting that same bureaucracy. They haven't changed it. And it, and what I'm hearing you say is the transformation needs to happen at the grassroots and then that will impact the bureaucracy or can it be changed from within the bureaucracy um, and then affect and impact the grassroots? Like how does, how does that happen? Well, you know, I think uh, as we go through the reconciliation process that is Canada, I think uh, we'll see more and more where the bureaucracy are starting to react to the to, to grassroots. And I think people will just go ahead and do it. Like mm-hmm. today, for example, there's over 80 Indigenous protected and conserved areas been declared by Indigenous nations. They're not waiting for public governments or crown governments to recognize them. They're not waiting for bureaucracies to endorse them. They're just doing it. Yes. You know? That's uh that's real leadership in the times in a time of crisis. You know, the Gen Xs and the public that that want to survive, um, this the twin crisis of climate change and, and biodiversity loss should be recognizing where leadership is happening and supporting that leadership. Uh, you know, that's their lives, it's their future generations, that's whose lives that this these things depend on. Uh so uh, it's already recognized that the healthiest lands are indigenous people's lands. And when indigenous peoples in Canada and their nations and their governments are saying we're declaring this part of our territory or traditional territory an, an indigenous protected and conserved area, yeah. then that should be respected because that, that area is going to provide the, the uh, nature uh, solutions and services that many people around that area is going to depend on that are not indigenous. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, Steve, we're almost, you know, close to the end of our, our time. Um, but I want to give you an opportunity, like if, I mean, we just heard your young son, 11 years old, he's curious and he he's got that, curious and awe like what's what's dad up to and how is this going to impact me you know like he's and he wants to to uh, contribute to this conversation because it's going to impact him um i want to give you an opportunity so for your for the you know before we end like what three main things People need, you know, most of my podcasts, I like to give actual ideas for people to do immediately. So with the environment, the way it is at an individual level, what three things can people at home do today um, that will make a difference? Hmm. That's a really good question. I know. Well, I think uh, the the one thing would be to be self-aware, to understand why we got to where we are today. Mm-hmm. You know, to figure out what's what went wrong, why it went wrong. That's you know, self-awareness, self-education. Uh, you can't depend on scientists. 
You can't depend on uh, bureaucracies for that for that information. Mm. So you know, an internal process of what went wrong to understand what can be done to address what went wrong. Uh, avoid getting depressed and giving up hope. Yeah. By looking for solutions and and how you could be part of that solution. But I think that's a, a, a huge, huge part of uh, what's needed uh, and what's going to be needed. Mm. Not everybody is going to have the ability to do frontline work. Yeah. To get out and restore areas. But they should be able to support that kind of work through who you put in the office, what value system you put into the office that, that, that influences policies and, and regulations and legislations. Uh, look for opportunities to support them financially, especially if you're living in, in major cities that uh, uh, where your role, you know, uh, where you may not feel that like you have a role or a space where you can exercise your constitution. I think, uh, and then leaders should uh, lead uh, where, where there's opportunity, participate in a real way, and leave avenues for individuals to plug into, corporations to plug into. It's going to take uh, a concerted effort, all pushing and pulling in the same direction as, as much as possible. Mm. I think uh, those would be the three ways uh, above what you're already doing by you know, separating your garbage and recycling, reusing, reducing. Those are good things. Mm. Yes, it we have to think globally and act locally. Yeah. And in them actions, you'll find hope. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's, you know, like I said earlier, that this conversation does give me hope. And, um, and these little action items that we can do individually gives me hope. And so people should find in their area who they can support that will give the, you know, by giving your support, you know, I don't know if everybody knows who's somebody on the front line, you know, like if you do know somebody on the front line, then it would be good to support that person um, even financially, um, encouraging them. And, you know, and this is why I wanted to have this conversation with you because I, I knew that you went to Cobb 15 and I wanted to hear what you took away from that. You know, what impressed you from that, that conference? 
Well, you know, it's cops, and I've been to cop uh, other cops before. Uh, the cops are coordinated and put together to to address real threats in climate change and biodiversity loss. Those those combinations are real. Uh, and COP15 was uh, to look at biodiversity specifically. Uh, but you can't really uh, exclude climate change. Uh, yeah. You're thinking in actions going forward. Uh, the, 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 the fact that 190 some countries agreed is a wondrous thing to, just to think about, you know, on language uh, of how to encourage uh, their countries uh, and organizations and governments and peoples of their countries to act in a way that's consistent with, with the, the framework. Uh, so, you know, to me, the framework represents uh, not the perfect way, but a, a way that the world has agreed that can can help address uh, biodiversity loss mm. and impact climate change. Uh, there's no way to enforce that, but it is a platform where you know when Canada. Agreed, uh, stated they want to protect 30% a year ago. They're an outlier mm. until until December uh, when 190 other countries, 190 some other countries agree to that now. So, you know, it's a focal point where every Joe, John, Abdullah, uh, yeah, or any other dude in every other country in the world can do their part uh, as a, an individual, as a leader, as a government uh, rep, as a corporate entity, uh, all manner of uh, of uh, of uh, of life uh, or responsibility of individuals can work towards a common goal now. Yeah. That's basically what it is. It's it's very encouraging, but it is now up to actions on at the country level, at the uh, provincial level in the case of Canada, and regions within the province and territory. That's the uh, you know that's also represents hope for future generations. Yeah. We do that. Yeah, that's that's really good. And um, maybe after, before I I leave you, I'd like to ask you: Are there maybe you can email me some links specifically that I can add to the um, to the podcast show notes? Because it's it's I think it's really important for people to know what's going on. You know globally and specifically up north um, and to just educate themselves and if there's anything they can do to support initiatives you know read up on it and find where you can put your support 
Well, you know, one area I didn't speak about, I should have spoken about more about, is that uh, I, I, I mentioned earlier there's a financial value per, in nature now. And there's a this marketplace that's been that's in development and and, and uh, financial value of land can be can be measured. You know the. Uh, Within that, there's, there's the carbon offsets and the potential for that. And I think uh, there's also recognition of a biodiversity certificate in areas where carbon offset is not a, doesn't meet because of the issue of additionality or jurisdiction. So, you know, in Canada, when Indigenous people are advancing like 80 IPCAs, uh, if uh, if that is supported, uh, it could be done. They could create economic opportunities by putting the nature-based solutions uh, on the marketplace, where that could be that revenues can be used to continually manage these uh, protected area, protected and conserved areas. Yeah, to, absolutely. I think that's. That's right. And uh, I can see where you're going with that. And I, I, yeah, I think that you should uh, send me the link for these initiatives. And if there's, if people listening to this podcast can support these initiatives today, that would create, uh, create movement in terms of the projects that are being undertaken in the North. Because people... Not only in the north, all over, all over the country. You know the the way Canada is one of the few jurisdictions in the world that still has enough intact uh, uh, landscapes that is providing uh, nature services that has a global impact. Mm. The uh, the boreal forests are one of the lungs of the earth. Yep, largely intact and. In the northern part of the provinces and territory, you know that's a that's you know, it's not just about the quantum of land; it's about the quality of the, the quantum that needs to be protected. Yeah, to put a financial value on the, that quality, defining the boundaries of of uh, these IPCAs and places like a uh, Port Chip, for an example, doesn't need the oil sands to to create an economy. In managing their territory, for an example, especially if uh, if uh, oil and carbon is uh, taken out of the economy, this will be a natural replacement for for a place like Fort Chip, where uh, some semblance of economies can can be maintained, and places like Tadouli Lake and uh, and the other. Genesothene and one Creek community that's advanced in the Seal River watershed, uh, trying to protect uh, 55,000 square kilometers of an intact watershed that's undisturbed in one of the last rivers that doesn't have a dam in Manitoba. You know, that area is biodiverse like crazy. The, the walrus, that's where they give birth to, to the youngs. The seal always use it. You got black bears, brown bears, White bears converging there, all manner of birds and other f- fish and so on. 
Now that's that can be valued at a extremely high high price point mm -hmm. in the world of uh, value in nature. So I don't think there's there's potential for creating economies at scale in what's been proven to be very difficult areas to create and maintain such economies. And we could get to 30% without burdening the tax base. That's the other message I'd like to hear. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that, I really like what you're saying. I I like hearing this because it does give me hope. And I think there's a lot of hope. But, you know, we we are inundated by news that are disaster ridden, you know, because the more disaster and the more fear they they have in us, the more news they can sell, you know, so it's, it's a vicious circle. And, uh, and that's why, you know, my intention with the podcast that I do create is to give hope and to give some clarity to people listening that, you know, you don't always have to look to others to solve a problem for you. You know, there, you always have your own agency to, to do things that you need to do for yourself first, because, you know, when you take care of your family, your, your own little unit, it's just a microcosm of what's going on in, in the world. And so by taking care of the things that you can do for yourself now, you are actually impacting the world in a global way, but you're starting off small. You're starting off just in your own family unit. And I know a lot of people, um, you know, they, they're hearing these, you know, ice falling from, you know, icebergs and melting and, and polar bears dying in the north. And these are all true, but there's also what you've just said, you know, conservation areas and protections created on a huge scale incurring you know in different countries not just in Canada but in other countries as well so we need to balance how we're looking at climate change and the impact of climate change and look at what we can do as humans to maintain the integrity of, of the earth. Well, you know, as the, some elders from BC stated uh, that uh, mother nature uh, is uh, given us a, a strong loving message to change our ways or else. And the fact that, uh, you know, life on Earth depends on biodiversity. It depends on the interconnectedness of animals, plants, and all living things. If we start losing too much of some of these animals and plants, then 
survival of uh, of uh, uh, Earth is going to be in question. We're the only species that's not needed for for to provide a service to the web of biodiversity to maintain life on Earth. Humans are the only thing that's not needed for life on Earth to continue. Yeah, and humans are the most destructive. Yeah, but not needed. Yeah, but not needed. So it's a bit ironic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because we think we're so important. Well, you know, like I said, you know, there's uh, there's been a world conditioning going on for the last 150 years, if not more. You know, the Bible has been one of the first ones. Hmm. That's been conditioning humans to think that we're above nature. Mm. Even in the Bible, you know, bend nature to your will. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Deep enough it's, uh, for the financial benefits of the church. Yeah, exactly. Church. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad we're having this conversation. I, I know this week I was uh, actually working on um, I also manage a foundation and um, it's a non-for-profit charity foundation and I, w- I was developing s- some code of conduct for the board members and I was talking to a Dene elder and he, he sent me a list of you know, a code of conduct for Dene, but I think it's universal to all Indigenous people because some of the items on the list as I went through really applies to all Indigenous people. And right at the very top is respect the land, the animals, you know, the feathered ones, the the fur ones, um, you know, all the animals on, on earth to respect and know that we are dependent on animals, flora, plants. We are dependent on them to survive. And, and as I was reading through the Dene code of, you know, that, that we, we were going to be following, it was really interesting that um, you know maybe there was one or two things about humans (laughs) you know and so one of them is you know we we need to respect ourselves first and others next but it's it really is the paramount responsibility we have is for the land and for the animals and and the Ferrara. And that's our responsibilities as stewards, as indigenous indigenous peoples, to protect the land, to to be responsible for it. And that was, you know, so that's been on my mind um, in the last, you know, week or so as I was developing this paper. And uh, and it fits into what you're saying. Well, you know, indigenous people in many, you've probably heard it in many 
public statements made by indigenous individuals. They normally start or end uh, end with uh, all my relations. Mm. That that captures the essence of what what they're talking about. They're not talking about just the human relations. They're talking about all the relations. Yeah, you're you're right. That's that's exactly what that means. <laughs> yes, because you know we never forget as Indigenous people where we stand in the universe, and we're not the top. You know, we're not at the top of the chain. We might think we are, but we we really are not. We're we're dependent on everything that Mother Earth provides for us. Yes, and I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, um, the worldview and understanding and acceptance that we don't own land, the land owns us kind of thing, uh, is uh, inconsistent with the uh, Western worldviews of ownership. Because uh, once you have ownership, then uh, ownership implies you are the ultimate. Yeah, you're right, and we're not. <laughs> we're not on the top. No, no, we're certainly not a keystone species. <laughs> so, Steve, um, any last words you want to um, to say before we end? I guess uh, I just say that you know. There's hope. Uh, there's actions being taken. Support good actions and support good leadership and and uh, contribute where you can and uh, and do it in a hopeful way and and uh, that's the opportunity that's in front of us uh, and let's take advantage of it. Yes, that's those are wise words. <laughs> wise words. Um, Steve, I want to say that I'm I'm really honored that you accepted my my invitation to be interviewed this evening. Well, it's evening for me, but it's probably early afternoon for you. Um, and I really enjoyed this conversation. I, I think there's some many components to it. And once I get your links, um, I can add to the show notes and anything else. You know, if there is a book you want to recommend people read, um, send that in, you know, the title in in the email to me as well. Because I want people listening to this conversation to have hope and to know that, you know, humans are not the end all, but they could be the end of all. (laughs) Um, So... So, Steve, thank you so much. I am so honored to be speaking with you this afternoon. And um, I look forward to to the links and hearing about some of the really good things that are going on north of 60. Uh, merci, Angie. Yeah, Sao na. Sao na. Merci, Joe.